Scripture lesson this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 and reading through verse 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as my memorial. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as my memorial. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would direct us according to your word now, that your spirit would help us to understand this your word from the Apostle Paul this day. May our faith be directed to Christ, our Savior and King, and the, the obedience to which you call us. We ask that you would strengthen us for, for this time together and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few months ago in the Sunday school class on our church distinctives, I spoke briefly to our practice of pedo communion, of child communion, um, but, but only gave a passing explanation of how we justify that practice in light of our text this morning from 1 Corinthians 11. Given this morning's baptisms, I thought this would be an appropriate occasion to give some more time and attention to this subject and text. For some of you, this will be review as you're already acquainted with the practice of Pado communion and the arguments that I'll be presenting. For others, this may be completely new. And I trust a helpful exercise in your further consideration of the practice of Pado communion And some of you may be somewhere in between and also hope that this will be a fruitful endeavor in further solidifying uh, in your faith and thinking the practice of having our baptized, our baptized children participating at the Lord's Supper. And while this isn't a new practice in the history of the church, it hasn't been as common in some of the Reformed and Presbyterian circles. And this text is really the text that people were turned to in order to dispute the practice of pedo communion or infant communion, young children at the table. 
And the appeal is primarily made from verses 28 and 29, where we read, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the, eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The argument then sounds something like this. Paul says that we are to examine ourselves, and that takes a certain mental capacity that young children don't have. Further, he says that we need to be able to discern the body, which means the Eucharist bread. If a child doesn't understand what the bread means, then they'll eat, drink, eat and drink condemnation upon themselves, and we certainly w- wouldn't want that for our children. And on a certain level, the argument sounds quite reasonable. It sounds rather concerned for the welfare of covenant children, because after all, what parent wants their kids to eat and drink condemnations upon themselves? Well, the argumentation usually heard from this text and the interpretation of Paul's words here to the Corinthians falls short on a number of crucial points. And we would do well to be able to uh, graciously answer those who might ask us about our practice of Pado communion in light of this text of Scripture. Some of you are familiar with Pastor Jeff Meyer's work on this, on this passage. Uh, he'll, be even, he'll be coming in a few weeks for Pastor Shade's installation service. I was first introduced to it in the late 90s through some correspondence I had received from a friend who was attending Jeff's church while in seminary. And Jeff then wrote his position in an article entitled Presbyterian Examine Thyself in 2002 for his church website. And then it was turned into a chapter in his book, The Lord's Service, which covers in even greater detail the nuances and implications of this. I'll be drawing from his work this morning. But if you want to examine this further, I commend his book to you. So how do we begin to answer the common charges that are made from this text? Well, first of all, we have to remember that we cannot just lift these verses out of the context in which they are spoken by the Apostle. It would be irresponsible to do so with any great piece of literature, even when quoting someone. You know, the, the, text must be, the context must be borne in mind to convey the correct information. For instance, the Bible says there is no God. The Bible says that. But what's the context of that statement? Well, it's the psalmist quoting the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. So context is key. And that's every bit as true here in 1 Corinthians 11. What happens more often than not, and we're inclined to this as anyone, is that we come to these few verses and we read them as if they stood alone. And we easily think that what Paul is saying is that we need to engage in some kind of inward examination of our lives... After all, that's, that's what it says right there in our Bibles, doesn't it? That we are to go trolling through the recesses of our heart and soul and be sure to, to drudge up every possible sin so that we can take the supper in a worthy manner. And Presbyterian and Reformed types historically or doctrinally don't typically find this hard to do. Uh, maybe some of you can recount worship experiences you've had in relation to the Lord's Supper in Reformed and Presbyterian churches over the years. Typically, it's quiet, it's solemn, it's time to bow your head and pray, and it's the one time in the service when the children need to be especially quiet and still as they watch the parents and older kids eat and drink. And we believe this to be the right approach to the supper and even our children's participation at the supper, or more properly, their lack of participation, and primarily because of the understanding we had of these verses in 1 Corinthians 11. Peruse any typical Reformed commentary, and this is basically what you'll read. In relation to verse 28, Simon Kistemacher, one of my professors in seminary, put it like this. Is Paul counseling the Corinthians to do 
is to do uh, con- to conduct self-examination before coming to the Lord's table? Should a pastor exhort the parishioners to examine themselves before they celebrate communion? The answer to these two queries is a resounding yes. And then later in regarding verse 29 and the logic of it in relation to verse 28, anyone who eats and drinks without such introspection receives God's judgment but not God's condemnation if he or she repents properly and differentiates a person's, a person's failure to submit self-examination results in God's subsequent judgment. This is as inevitable as night follows day. Or John Calvin, whom we love and cite for just about everything else, when speaking of baptism and the Lord's Supper, he states this, For with respect to baptism, the Lord there sets no definite age, but he does not similarly hold forth the supper for all to partake of, but only those who are capable of discerning the body and blood of the Lord, of examining their own conscience, of proclaiming the Lord's death, and of considering its power. Do we wish anything plainer than the apostle's teaching when he exhorts each man to prove and search himself than to eat this bread and drink this cup? A self-examination ought therefore to come first and it is vain to expect this of infants. If only those who know how to distinguish rightly the holiness of Christ's body are able to participate worthily, why should we offer poison instead of life-giving food to our tender children? It's a pretty strong argument there. The Scots Confession of 1560 under the heading To Whom the Sacraments Appertain states... We confess and acknowledge that baptism appertains as well to the infants of the faithful as unto those that be of age and discretion. And we so damn the error of the Anabaptists who deny baptism to appertain to children before they have faith and understanding. But the supper of the Lord we confess to appertain to such only as to be of the household of faith and can try and examine themselves as well in their faith as in their duty towards their neighbors. Such as eat and drink at that holy table without faith or being at dissension and division with their brethren do eat unworthily. And therefore it is that in our kirks, our ministers take public and particular examination of the knowledge and conversation of such as are to be admitted to the table of the Lord Jesus. Now there's some helpful exhortation here in keeping with Paul's text, but we hear once again the theme of self-examination. The Westminster Standards reflecting the same teaching in the larger catechism, wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ? The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ in that baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and seal of our, congr- of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ and that even to infants. Whereas the Lord's Supper is to be ministered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in Him and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves." So there is a sense in which there's a fair portion of our Reformed tradition that is in line with this common view of the table, which we've all experienced, and that whoever partakes of the bread and wine has to be able to engage in some level of self-examination. And, yes, I'll be ready, I'll readily admit not being in agreement with the likes of Calvin and others does give one pause, but we can humbly disagree with him and others and recognize that um, on this particular subject there is more to consider and that we might have a bit more light on it uh, than them for whatever reason. Interestingly enough, the Hussites, those who followed the teaching of John Huss, who Huss was a proto-reformer in Bohemia, uh, the Hussites included paedo-communion as a key component of their stand against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. At the Synod of Wenceslas, which took place in 1417, so it's 100 years before Luther posted his 95 Theses, the communion of infants was at the head of its 23 articles. 
Evidence of the practice of paedo-communion can also be found in various writings from some of the early church fathers and documents that are available to us, indicating that the practice of infants and children at communion is not some new innovation. Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the second century, wrote, And as soon as we are regenerated, that's his language for baptism, or baptized, we are honored by receiving the good news of the hope of rest, receiving through what is material the pledge of sacred food. In other words, his basic argument is that baptism leads to the Lord's Supper and children, even infants, are allowed to participate. Uh, Even though we sang it just a couple of weeks ago, today's offertory hymn, Shepherd of Tender Youth, is attributed to Clement of Alexandria. And you'll note particularly in verse 1 the phrase, Here we are children bring to shout your praise. And then in verse 5, Infants and the glad throng who to your church belong. So he clearly understands that children, uh, to be a part of the church, to be members of the church, and that's a designation received by virtue of the baptism. Well, before we can dig into the, the text from 1 Corinthians 11 itself, um, let's try to get a sense of, of Paul's letter as a whole. Remember, the importance of context. And that means the context of everything that Paul wrote to the Corinthians up to this point, and not just the verses immediately surrounding the text in question, though they're important too. And so we need to start at 1 Corinthians 1.1 and just start reading straight through. Yes, we do, but um, I'm not going to do that today. A quick question to test your memory or knowledge. What is one of the primary issues, if not the primary issue, that Paul addresses throughout this letter? Divisions. The divisions that existed within the church. The Corinthians were hardly unified. Paul has hardly finished the typical greetings and introductory remarks at the beginning of the letter when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? That's basically where Paul begins. And it's a theme that he returns to throughout the letter. After stating the problem, then instructing them through chapter 2, chapter 3 begins, uh, chapter 3 begins in similar fashion. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul goes on seeking to correct their mistaken thinking yet again, and even appeals to the fact of his own example, telling them in chapter 4, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul then speaks to some other issues along the way in chapter 5, but then we come to chapter 6, and what is Paul having to instruct them in here? How they are to deal with one another in regards to disputes. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Again, the, the Corinthians are hardly unified. They're taking one another to court. In chapter 8, Paul talks about the weaker brother in relation to food sacrificed to idols and how love edifies and doesn't seek to put stumbling blocks in the paths of others. In other words, things that cause separation between the brethren. Then in chapter 10, which has even more bearing on chapter 11 due to its content and proximity, we read, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now that word participation is the same word we sometimes render fellowship. So Paul is arguing from the sacraments in regards to their identity and the unity they should have. And if you follow Paul's argument, he's essentially contending that the sacraments that the Old Covenant saints participated in set the example or put in place the principle for how the New Covenant saints are to understand the sacraments that they've been given. Basically, Paul is saying, if this was the case for Israel, if Israel was unified by these things, then how much more should that be the case for you, Corinthians? Note again, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Then we come into chapter 11. Paul has some instructions about worship and not only our uh, passage in relation to the supper, but also in verses 2 to 16, especially the matter of women in worship and covering their heads. And we won't address the particulars of it today. But once again, there's another conflict to which Paul uh, speaks and is, it fundamentally has to do with some of the women who want to act like men, which proves disruptive to the worship and body life. Ironically, the women perhaps argued that their actions were for the sake of unity, but only caused further disunity. Well, that then brings us to our text for this morning. And what does Paul say? Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So there it is again, the matter of divisions. The problem that the apostle comes back to again and again in all of its various manifestations and particularly at the table of the Lord. Now, a couple of, of comments about the text. Verse 19 is most likely a sarcastic comment on Paul's part. Uh, he's used a number of those throughout the letter already, and this appears to be another instance of him doing that. Notice that he condemns their divisions and then says there must be factions. So he isn't contradicting himself or even making allowances for factions so the true believers will be evident. No, not at all. Rather, he's, sar he's sarcastically saying, I've heard about the divisions that exist, and I believe it in part because, after all, the really spiritual ones in the church need to be recognized. So he's, he's throwing it back in their face, so to speak. Furthermore, what Paul also seems to be combating are some of the cultural customs of the day. Uh, there were societal and cultural orders that were followed, particularly in relation to the seating that took place at meals. You know, think about how this comes up um, on a number of occasions in the Gospels. Now, from what we can tell, the Corinthians, um, the Corinthian church met in a house, likely the house of Titius Justus, 
who lived right next to the synagogue, and he would have been a wealthy man. In those days, the host or the patron's home could typically seat nine people in the best room and as many as 40 in the adjoining atrium, which was a large furnished room. And according to the customs of the day, the patron would typically seat the members of their own high social class in the best room, while others were served in plain view of this room in the adjoining room. Also, the guests in the atrium, the larger room, were often served in fear of food and wine, and would even complain about the situation. Apparently, the societal mores have spilled over into the church, and it's causing problems. There's one group enjoying the best of the food and the wine, and eating and drinking plenty, and then there's another getting left out. And very likely, the ones getting left out are the poor. And because this was the conduct, Paul says in verse 20, you might think you're gathering to eat the Lord's Supper, but you're not. As a bit of an aside, it's interesting to note the designation that Paul uses here, the Lord's Supper, is the only one found in the entire New Testament. And he uses it in, as an ironic contrast to their supper, doesn't he? You know, compare what's going on here in Corinth with Jesus in the upper room, a towel wrapped around his waist, washing the disciples' feet. The, the, the two pictures are hardly compatible. In verse 22, the class distinctions come into even sharper focus. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So Paul is clear that he doesn't approve of their practice. Verses 23 to 26 constitute the words of institution. Paul is reminding them of the context of the supper, what is symbolized and pictured in the bread and wine, almost as if to say, where's the room for being haughty or arrogant or boastful? And then in verse 27, we begin to come to the crux of the issue. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verses 28 and 29. And here is where we need to make a careful examination of what Paul is saying. Translations read, let a man examine himself. But examine really isn't the best translation of the word that Paul is using. The word more correctly means to approve, approve, or test. So the verse reads, let a man prove himself. Paul has used this word already to the Corinthians back in chapter 3 and verse 13, saying, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test The fire will prove what sort of work each one has done. He uses it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. But it's a word that doesn't normally refer to a self-reflexive internal act of self-evaluation. There's another word for that. Rather, it has to do with proving or approving something or someone, often publicly or at least in relation to others. So there's a corporate context of the proving that is to take place. The approval comes in relation to other people, and specifically in this case, to fellow believers. So take this understanding and then place it within the overarching context of chapters 10 to 12, and Paul's stress on the unity of the body of the Christ, and it makes much more sense. You know, we won't go into chapter 12, but you can read it later and, and further see the context uh, in which chapter 11 is found. Therefore, and this is key, a man proves himself by how he eats, 
not how much theology he knows about the Lord's Supper or how thoroughly he searches his heart. In 1017, Paul states that one loaf equals one body. A Christian proves himself when he behaves as a loving member of the body of Christ, avoiding divisive and schismatic behavior, especially at the communion table. As we've already established, this is precisely what they were not doing. So to eat and drink unworthily is a reference to participation at the supper to table manners and behavior. Unworthily is an adverb that modifies eat in verse 27. Paul is using a word that relates to action. Perhaps this is helpful to consider, but in other places where Paul says to walk worthy of your calling, what's he saying? Well, he's saying to live and act a certain way as a believer in light of the gospel. Well, the word he uses here for unworthy is the antonym, the opposite word to worth, to state the obvious, and it too is primarily linked to action, to conduct. The Corinthian believers were conducting themselves in such a way that didn't evidence the body of Christ. So the way in which they were to prove themselves is in reference to their manner of participation at the table and by implication, their relationship to the local body of Christ. See, there's there's nothing about individuals deciding for themselves if they are worthy to come to the table based on performance and some introspective self-examination. Rather, Christ's table should be approached with demonstration of faithfulness, ecclesiastical faithfulness. This is what Paul means when he instructs him to discern the body. He's referencing the body, that is, the church, not having some, some intellectual understanding of the flesh of Christ as pictured in the bread. And this is an important point because it specifically addresses the typical view of the text. Think again about how the argument often goes. Children can't articulate the theology regarding the bread as the body of Christ. They can't discern the body. That's not what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do. To be clear, in verse 29, when Paul talks about discerning the body, body refers not to the body of Christ, pictured in the bread, but to the church body. Now, maybe you ask, well, how can we know this to be the case? It really just sounds like you're wanting the text to say what you want it to say. And so you're interpreting body to mean church in this instance to fit your argument. That's a fair question, but one that can be readily answered. First of all, on a practical level, why would Paul instruct the Corinthians to discern the body, the bread, and not discern the blood, the wine? That's worth asking. But even more, consider that whenever Paul refers to the sacrament in this text, he is always careful to mention both the body and the blood. This begins in the words of institution in verses 24 and 25. And then in verse 26, we have Paul's commentary about how we proclaim the Lord's death when we eat the bread and drink from the cup. Then in verse 27, he specifically, uh, he especially uh, references eating the bread and drinking from the cup again. What about verse 28? Same thing. Bread and cup are explicitly mentioned. Then at the uh, the beginning of verse 29, eating and drinking are spoken of. Then follow the logic. Without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If by body, Paul means the communion bread, then how could someone possibly drink judgment on themselves when that has to do with the blood pictured in the wine? Again, body in verse 29 is referring to the church body. 
The Corinthians need to discern who their brothers and sisters are in the Lord and not make distinctions or treat some as lesser members of the body of Christ because of their social status. You know, later today or um, this week, go and read James chapter 2, where he resoundingly condemns showing partiality. Well, it's essentially the same thing here in Corinth. They're not loving their neighbor, their fellow brother or sister who have the very same Savior who are also washed in the blood of Christ. And what's more, look at how Paul comes full circle in verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, where have you heard that before? Back in verse 20. When you come together to eat, this is all connected. What are they to do? They are to wait for one another. The language there could also mean receive or welcome as a guest, which, which fits pretty well with the overall context. But the point is the same. There's to, be, there's to be a deference shown to all of the body. If you're rich and want more food or have a party with your friends, do it another time. The celebration of the Lord's table is not the time for that. If that's the attitude, then the meal of blessing is turned into a meal of judgment. And in his summary in verses 33 and 34, if Paul intended for the Corinthians to engage in some form of introverted self-examination, this would be the perfect time to say that, to emphasize it again, and yet he doesn't. Now, make no mistake about it, the judgment for profaning the table in this way is very real, and the Lord is not to be trifled with on this point. And he'll use the supper to the edification of those who come worthily and to the discipline of those who come divisively. Paul is clear on that point as well. But again, the exhortation is how to act in relation to the corporate body of Christ. Remember that the table is a picture of unity. It's to be a picture of peace. We're to manifest the unity we have as the body of Christ when we eat and drink at this table. One of the earliest post-apostolic Christian documents, the Didache, or the teaching of the apostles, gives this exhortation regarding the Lord's Supper. But every Lord's Day do ye gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled that your sacrifice may not be profaned. So where's where's the emphasis? On the oneness of the community. And this is part of the instruction in the Scots Confession as as well that we heard earlier. Certainly a point that uh, may be mentioned by others in the Reformed tradition. But unfortunately, not always receiving its proper emphasis. Well, I hope this has been a helpful exercise this morning. Undoubtedly, um, more could be said, plenty more could be said. Um, but I hope this helps, uh, helps to have a fuller sense of what Paul is saying here and also to help establish why this isn't a proof text for those who are opposed to Pado communion In fact, in light of Paul's words, this is a text that fully supports our children being at the table. How so? Well, because by virtue of their baptism, children are members of the body of Christ. They are in Christ They are in communion with Him. To not recognize them as such and not have them participate in the supper is to commit the very sin that Paul is instructing against. Furthermore, to whom is Paul's admonition primarily aimed in chapter 11? Or the whole letter for that matter. At adults. You know, children are not mainly in view and a childlike faith is not being condemned by the apostle. Uh, It's doubtful there were children showing up drunk uh, to church. Now, certainly young children are capable of disobedience and even some form of the sin Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 11. They are to 
found to be willfully divisive and unmindful of the unity of the body of Christ, then they should be warned. Nevertheless, there is no reason to think that Paul intended to bar covenant children from the table unless they too were manifesting disrespect for the body of Christ. Glenn Davis put it in these words, If Paul had intended to prohibit children from the Lord's table, then it would have contradicted his inclusion of children in the Old Testament equivalent of communion with Christ. Again, see chapter 10, verse 1 and following. Yet, God's judgment upon Israel's unfaithfulness is that the adults perished in the wilderness, all those 20 years and upward, except Joshua and Caleb, perished. The adults who murmured against the Lord never saw the promised land. If then the children of the Old Covenant were able to eat the same spiritual food and drink the same spiritual drink without condemnation, how much more can the children of the New Covenant eat and drink the body and blood of their Lord without condemnation? We have to keep in mind, the, the Lord doesn't condemn our immaturity or the immaturity of our children. Rather, He judges and disciplines our disobedience. And to not discern the body, which we argue includes our baptized children, will incur that correction. So, so let us prove ourselves and discern the body, a body that includes our baptized children. And let us come in a worthy manner to the table, rejoicing in the love and peace of Christ that is ours, celebrating the unity that is ours in the blood of the Lamb, and the true fellowship that is ours as saints of God. Now, think about it. Tables create fellowship. Uh, meals produce unity. And it's no different for the Lord's table and for His meal. The bread and wine are for those in covenant with Him who have received the sign of belonging to Him, which means baptized children are welcome to also participate in this means of grace. And we serve a Father who is kind and who readily gives to His children what is needed. We serve a generous Savior and King who says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we give you thanks for your word and pray that you would continue to unify us in Christ and that we might live in peace with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Preserve us from any form of disunity and continue to cultivate in us a spirit of humility, deference, and consideration for one another as we seek to serve you. Direct and strengthen us to this end by the Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.